0: Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It is spooky season, and of course, we are back with a brand new episode of my favorite flop. Uh, That is seasonally themed for all you crazy kids out there.
2: How's everybody doing? I'm Christina.
1: And I'm Bobby. And I could not be more excited that it's starting to get darker early. It is starting to get cooler outside. This has been a hot summer. And I live in Las Vegas, so it's been really hot. (laughs) And... I am just thrilled that even though the world is crazy right now, uh, no matter where you turn on TV, you can watch super fun, spooky movies. That's my favorite holiday season of the year.
2: Yes. I mean, hocus pocus. Oh, wow.
1: And more. So, anyways, Christina, what have you been listening to this week?
2: Well, I decided to stay in theme. And okay. I think. This may end up being the week where we both listen to the same thing. I'm interested. Um, And I decided to listen to Aida.
1: Okay. Oh, my goodness. All right.
2: Yes. All right. I mean, it's such a fun score. It's such a fun score to sing. It's such a fun score to listen to. I just really enjoy it. Uh, And, like, Strongest Suit was one of the first... Contemporary musical theater songs I think I ever learned in high school because it was a big deal when I was in high school. Aida okay. was. and so that was the group number that we did. and I got to choreograph it. So that was fun,
1: really? <laughs> yeah, I so like what's crazy about Aida is I know like the main songs, you know, but I've mm-hmm. never, like really gotten into it. But anytime that, like, I get a little Ida Curious. I enjoy it. So yeah. I feel like I need to take the plunge, but I never saw the show.
2: Yeah, and I, I feel that way as well. I've never seen the show. I've auditioned for it, but I've never actually ended up going to watch it. Okay. Um, And I would be interested to see how it all fits together because it's such a fun rock pop score. Right. But s- for some reason, feels so far removed from subject matter. I mean, it ran for, for years on Broadway. Right. That is probably one of Elton John's most successful musicals besides Lion King. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I I find it really fun and entertaining to listen to. And the... I mean, that original cast was spectacular. Um, but yeah, no, I would love to see it. I'd love to actually get to see how how the pieces fit together. I mean, I've seen videos from the original production and it's so colorful. Right which is also not something I ever really expected. Um, but it is, it's so colorful and feels like such a celebration of the culture, I guess is the best way to put it.
1: Yeah, no, it's such a fascinating piece that again, I don't, I am not fully embraced in the aida but you know, it's what Disney's like only, I think it's its only original Broadway musical, right?
2: Oh, I guess you're right.
1: And um, it. Is obviously by Elton John and Tim Rice, which are like a power couple on oh, Broadway, yeah. <laughs> and uh in power suits. In power suits, but like so many um, of Tim Rice shows, it also had uh, a concept. Have you have you heard the concept album in addition to the Broadway cast recording?
2: No, I didn't even. I didn't realize that they had one.
1: Oh, because it's Elton John. It's like all the famous people in the world singing songs from Aida. So you you have to you have to listen to that because who's on it? Like Leanne Rhymes and uh, what? <laughs> Shania Twain, Boys to Men. I think the Spice Girls sing "Strongest Suit." If I'm no. not, yes. Oh
2: okay, I need to go listen to this.
1: I, I'm pretty sure that's what they sing. And then I think Elton John duets with Heather Headley and. Chairman A. Scott on A Step Too Far. So poor Adam Pascal wasn't invited to the party. Uh, <laughs> but, and I could be wrong on that. But like it is it is a potpourri of 90s pop stars. I love that. that. A potpourri
2: like, instead of a potpourri.
1: A potpourri of pop stars. I don't know. It's it's such a quirky thing because I wish Disney did more of that because Aida was. Success- it's so weird that it hasn't been revived either. I don't know.
2: That's a good point. I'm surprised it hasn't been revived, especially from its success and its success regionally. There's, that's interesting, yeah.
1: Well, Elton John has become a force on Broadway, you know, yeah. with things like, um, got your favorite, Billy Elliot, but also, yeah. uh, you know, working on other projects. I don't know, I it's weird. It's weird to me that we haven't seen a revival and it's weird to me that Disney hasn't done more original musicals. Anyway, I'm glad that you listened to Aida. That's a surprise. I wasn't expecting that one. Well, what did you listen to this week, Bobby? So, I went on Brand the Other Direction. Okay. I listened to something that I sadly don't think we'll ever cover on this podcast because there was a podcast earlier this year that covered it in depth, but I listened <laughs> to the original Broadway soundboard of Carrie the Musical. Oh, uh, it's spooky season, so I had to. I had to do it.
2: Well, tell me how much you love this show, Bobby. I mean, concisely. I,
1: concisely i love this show because before i got into musical theater i was a big horror movie fan and so once my love moved to musical theater and i discovered that this show existed i immediately was like i don't know what it is because i hadn't discovered that yet but i i already like convinced myself i was gonna love it (laughs) and then i discovered the really amazing things about it and then the really not so amazing things about her at least at as a teenager, you know, that mm. um, I've learned to appreciate over the years. And I was just like, this, this all, this all clicks to me. I mean, <laughs> it really is like the genesis of why I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Because to me, how that came to be is the most commercial decision in the world. But also, I think one of the most daring, like, who in their right minds in the 1980s is like, we're going to turn a Stephen King novel slash movie, into a Broadway musical. Debbie Allen's going to choreograph it. It's going to be written by the dudes from Fame. Oh, and by the way, um, it's also going to be produced by the Royal Shakespeare Company. Like, we're going to do all these things. Like, it, that stuff doesn't happen anymore.
2: So what, from when you listen to it as a teenager, that you're like, this is terrible choices, that you came to appreciate later?
1: All of the teenager songs um which oh, is interesting yeah which is interesting because i have learned to appreciate them more so i don't know if i was a very cultured 16 17 year old who was like i mean betty, or any of us betty buckley Lindsay hatley this is genius what is what is going on with these teenagers um i don't know it's i i, I appreciate the piece as a whole a lot now but those songs especially on broadway don't waste the moon um uh, do me a favor even in these are all songs that i love now but i just had a hard time as a teenager and i was but i was still like they're weirdly good in a bad way i don't know that's what i listened to this week okay <laughs> anyway. so should we
2: should we move on to our episode you want yeah. to get a
1: clues yes we should move on to these clues so the first clue, ladies and gentlemen, that we gave you at the end of the last episode, which would clue y'all into the fact that we were moving into spooky season, was this. Both of these deadly musicals, based on novels, were described by Bent Brantley as having nothing going on that would keep you awake, a.k.a. the musical sleeping pill.
2: <laughs> and clue number two was on Twitter. Both of these musicals had record-breaking runs during their out-of-town tryouts.
1: Which was followed by our Instagram clue, which was a picture of Meryl Streep and The Devil Wears Prada.
2: And then the blog post was about five musical flops by Frank Wildhorn.
1: And our last and final clue, boys and girls, is this that we're giving to you now. Members of the creative teams to both of these musicals have contributed material to the Beauty and the Beast film series. Christina, should we tell them what these musicals are?
2: Yes, let's tell them.
1: All right, drum roll, please.
2: (gasps) (laughs) Lestat.
1: And Dracula, (laughs) the musical.
2: So we're gonna start with Dracula tonight because it came first.
1: Both the novel it's based on and the musical. And the movie. And the movie. Wow. I mean, that makes sense. Dracula's pretty famous, right?
2: He's the original. He's the OG. So Dracula opened on Broadway in 2004. Music by Frank Wildhorn. Lyrics by Don Black and Christopher Hampton, who also wrote the book. um, Based on Bram Stoker's Dracula.
1: Dracula. And that's a pretty epic team. I mean, Frank Wildhorn has worked with Don Black a couple times. Probably most famously to a lot of you youngins. Bonnie and Clyde but um, Don Black has a very special place in my heart because he wrote the lyrics to the worst witch
2: seven degrees of separation to the worst witch always oh sure I love it okay Bobby why don't you give them the synopsis
1: okay Set in Europe at the end of the Victorian age, the story follows the infamous vampire as he lusts for new blood. Jonathan Harker and Mina Murray fall victim to Dracula's unnatural charm and along with his nemesis, Dr. Van Helsing, must fight Dracula's supernatural powers.
2: A comedy. (laughs) Is this one a comedy, though? It's really not.
1: (laughs) No. This Dracula is considered one of the greatest I'm going to say love stories of all time but yeah. maybe one of the greatest lust stories it's a sexy novel have you read have you ever read the book
2: i haven't i've seen the original film okay because i i even though i am not a horror buff okay um i took a class in college that was about the origination of horror films because oh interesting historically horror films is actually what gave hollywood its life
1: oh 100 universal studios
2: the lamley's that was what brought filmmaking to hollywood and so in 1931 i believe um is when they made the movie dracula for an American audience, so the success of Hollywood is built on the back of Dracula and those original horror films. The musical actually started in San Diego at La Jolla, which is where the biggest one that's come out there probably is Jersey Boys. Jersey Uh, Boys
1: and Tommy, probably.
2: Yeah, and Jersey Boys was directed by Des Mackinoff, and so was Dracula.
1: And Tommy, too, actually. There you go. Um, oh, okay, there you all, go. <laughs> he directs all the shows out of Oh, my goodness. They love Des. Uh, they love Des, and, and it's so weird because this is thematically nothing like either of those shows. No, like, it's not. I, I think Tommy and Jersey Boys kind of make sense in the same creative yeah, they're jukebox universe.
2: they're musicals, right?
1: Cousins, you know. But this seems very off for what I know for for Des, which may be one of the reasons why this one didn't gel the way the other ones did.
2: No, because this this musical was very much in the vein of Les Mis. Um, it actually reminded me a lot of Tale of Two Cities. I saw that back in two thousand.
1: You did see Tale of Two Cities
2: two thousand eight, whenever that came out, and I saw one of the previews, and it was look, some of the music was really interesting. But right. it just, like, it didn't make any sense. Like, I didn't know what was happening. I think that Les Mis is kind of an anomaly when it comes to epics. Right. Um. I think it's really hard to put such an epic piece of literature on stage. Um. And I feel the same way about Dracula. Like, well, there's so much that happens.
1: It's interesting that you mention epic literature because... You know Frank Wildhorn composed this musical and if you look at a lot of his shows, he chooses and and I don't know if we have brought this up on this podcast or if I've talked to somebody else about it, but I'm going to talk about it now. Uh, right. um, Frank Wildhorn adapts a lot of really epic stories based mm-hmm. on epic novels, Jekyll and Hyde, Dracula, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, and I don't know if it's strictly because those stories are so larger than life that you at face value you think they would make really great sweeping musicals right or if simply because you don't have to pay for the rights because they're (laughs) out of copyright which happens to be the case for i think almost every single musical that frank wildhorn has ever written there you go which is interesting to think about as well right
2: it's yeah and so let's talk about the musical real quick about just some of the um visual aspects of the show so this show at la jolla had a lot of automation it had a lot of tricks and theater tricks and right. and um even some pyro stuff right it was really well received in la jolla i, th-
1: I think officially the most successful musical they've ever produced
2: yeah, which is crazy to think because of Jersey Boys. Jersey Boys was a massive success down there, but this one superseded it, I believe. Right. And w- one thing that is infamous about the La Jolla production and not the Broadway production was that at the opening scene to the show is Jonathan Harker coming to Dracula and Dracula attacks the carriage and he walks off the front of the stage and just disappears and in the words of the review that I read, just walks off the edge of the stage and disappears without a trace. And you don't hear anything. It just, like, transition into next scene. And they cut that for the Broadway show, which confuses me. But that was, like, the most stunning thing that anyone had ever seen. And that's how you open the show.
1: To know that they were able to do that in the out of town tryout for this, I mean... Vamp- when you're dealing with horror creatures that are mm-hmm. not human, you know what I mean? Um, they have these mystical powers and abilities, and vampires, uh, depending on the lore that you are going to go by, whether it's an Anne Rice vampire, it's a Bram Stoker vampire, it's a sparkly vampire. A sparkly vampire, yes. A <laughs> uh, Stephanie Meyer vampire. Uh, you know, these <laughs> these powers these mysticisms that go with them uh they're even hard to translate to the screen speaking of sparkling vampires you know so <laughs> yeah. to be able to achieve something so effective on stage and then to drop it when you're at the 11th hour blows my mind
2: yeah it's interesting those choices that get made i would i couldn't find any literature on why they made the change right. just that it was cut by the time they got to Broadway. So it goes through a lot of revisions. Right. From what I understand between La Jolla and Broadway, um, including uh, additions to the score, changes to the score, of course, changes to some casting. Right. And once it gets to Broadway, there's a big dip in how people feel about it. (laughs) Well, yeah. as we mentioned in our first clue for this episode, Ben Brantley thought it was a sleeping pill for theater. He was really unimpressed by it. And I mean, one of my favorites that I found was talk about draining blood from the undead, anemic, inert.
1: Oh, no. I mean, and and I think a lot of that has to do with, I think this team really tried to tell the love story of Dracula or the lust story, depending on how you view the the situation. And they tried to humanize this story, but by doing that, they made it extremely boring. And, you know, when the most exciting song in your musical is Deep in the Darkest Night, Mm -hmm. there's a problem. There are no epic group songs in this musical. like
2: No, which is strange because they have those, I think it's three or four of the like vampirists who like yes. show up for transitions and are doing actually really cool choreography. on... But they're not
1: singing anything cool.
2: No, they're like doing oz and and like... But they get to do all this really cool visual stuff. Um, but like you said, they don't sing much and it feels like a waste. It feels like a waste of talent and a waste of the visual epicness that they created with that within the choreography the way that the costumes look on them and then those i don't even know what to call them they're like screens that swing past each other on stage yeah Um, and they're and basically the vampirists are hooked onto those right um and that's how they're flying and those sorts of things and you know we I made a joke about it's a comedy. It's not a comedy, and they really went for that lay miz feel of like dreary and this is dark and gothic, right, which I don't know if that's wrong because you're if you want to be true to the material, that's it, right? Like that's what it is. But then they would try and add in humor with characters like Renfield,
1: oh, and it's so. It doesn't work.
2: Yeah. And I feel like it was funny when I was watching that particular number. I was like, oh, and now we've gone to Young Frankenstein. You know, all of a sudden,
1: <laughs> all of a sudden out of nowhere.
2: Yeah, it was really bizarre. It was very confused. And it's also like his story telling within that song is confusing on. Is he really in love with Dracula or is it is he just like a weirdo? You know, he's technically Van Helsing's assistant, but, but is like, he
1: possessed? Is yeah, he... like,
2: I, it was so confusing, and I couldn't figure it
1: out. So literally, other than that, and Deep in the Darkest Night, it is is literally ballads for the rest of the show. Yes. Which, the entire oh. show is just ballads. And there are some very pretty ones. I mean, Please Don't Make Me Love You is gorgeous.
3: Mm.
1: It, to me, it's one of my favorite Wild Horn songs. I mean, one of my favorite Wild Horn songs ever is actually the finale to the show, which I yeah. think works really well if the rest of the show earned that it is yep. a, I uh, it's one of my favorite things in the world that please don't make me love you slash there's always a tomorrow slash yep. whatever song other song they add into that is a thrilling finale but it is
2: and then what's it is a thrilling finale vocally and then it just
1: Ends. It doesn't end the right way.
2: Yeah, and I'm like, oh, and we like we were going, going, we were going for this epic climax, and then it just went... Blah, blah, blah.
3: <laughs> yeah, it yeah. It's also
2: interesting how... And I know that they're trying to stay as true as possible to the original source material of the book, but I was just confused on who the heroine was based on how they divvied up the songs and, you know, your focus for the audience. Like, I wasn't sure if Mina is supposed to be right. our heroine or if it's Lucy. And then Lucy dies at the end of Act One. And I'm like, okay, so it's not Lucy, but you just spent all of Act One getting me on board that she's the woman I'm going to follow throughout this whole thing.
1: No, I I agree with you. I mean, it, it a lot of what I think Dracula has against it is a lot of some Frank Wildhorn isms that I feel like are, are consistent in a lot of his projects. I mean, what you've described with Lucy and Mina is kind of the Lucy versus Emma conundrum of Jekyll and Hyde. Like, who are we, who are we rooting for here? You know, who is our heroine in regards to this conflicted man? And so that's present, but at least Jekyll and Hyde, and and maybe because he wrote Jekyll and Hyde for so long, it has got, those ensemble numbers that give mm-hmm. the people of London a character. It gives them multiple characters because you've got the upper class and the lower class. You've got the, the conflict between the two. They have a voice. Like I, I feel like this is common for a lot of his later shows is that you don't get that ensemble voice, which I don't think specifically in these Gothic musicals works because you take something like Dracula or vampires, like there is definitely an opinion from the townsfolk. And to not have that present, because any, I feel like anytime you see a movie, a Dracula movie, the townsfolk and how they view the situation is very much part of the story, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, in the 1930s movie, it felt very lonely. The tone was very lonely. It felt like you were isolated. Okay, Which is what you would want for something like this. And I think that's what they were going for in the musical. But as you pointed out, because there's no opportunity maybe for an upbeat or even a comedy song or something to like release the exhaustion of the ballad and the darkness. I mean, the set design, the lighting design for this show is so dark. Right, that like naturally is going to start to put you to sleep just because there's no light on stage. So you've got no light anywhere. And then I couldn't even recall the
1: melodies. Okay. Right. Well, right? And that's usually something Frank Wildhorn has going for him. So right. that's that's definitely an extra strike on this one. But I will say, you know, this show ended up closing on January 2nd, 2005 on Broadway, but literally months later made its European premiere in Switzerland, and went on to become one of the most successful musicals around the world. Like, nonstop Dracula everywhere.
2: Everywhere. I mean, they did it in Austria. They did it in Switzerland. They did it in Korea, like, four times. They did it in Tokyo. Actually, the one in Tokyo is really interesting because that ended up being an all-female cast. Ooh. And so, Yoko Wow played Dracula.
1: Wait, and you know that Yoko is actually Frank's... Second wife. Wait, what? Oh, yeah. And if you think about it, it's actually kind of romantic. He married his Lucy and he married uh, his female Dracula, but Yoka has done a a bunch of Frank's shows in Asia.
2: True love. That's amazing. And actually, what's equally amazing is that she was the first female Dracula in a professional production.
1: And that's fascinating.
2: Isn't that fun? I think that would actually be really fun to watch and more interesting to a certain extent than what the musical on page, like, on the page is. Right. Um, But it is. It's fascinating to me how well, and not just this show, but a lot of Frank Wildhorn shows, they are more successful in the European and Asian market than they are ever in the States.
1: Which is so sad because I enjoy a large like platter of Frank Wildhorn stuff, you know? I really enjoy a lot of his music, but the shows themselves, I just don't know if they work. So it makes me wonder when they get transferred to different languages, if somehow those new book writers fix things or maybe, maybe musical theater is perceived in different countries differently than it is in the United States. I don't know.
2: It might also be influence from producers. Like there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of expectation when it comes to moving a show from an out of town tryout to Broadway. Right. We talk, we're going to talk about it with our next musical Lestat about massive changes that were also right. made from the out of town tryout that was very successful to the broadway and i do wonder if a lot of that comes from having too many cooks in the kitchen right you have to have a f- you have to have at least a handful of money producers involved in a musical to get it to broadway from a monetary standpoint right and all those people because they put in so much money Right. You know, they get a say.
1: Well, and I think, you know, when you don't have those stakes so high of Broadway or die, you know, because it's already done Broadway at this point, I think you you get these. And luckily for Frank Wildhorn is you get these really creative directors in other countries who are able Mm. to take the material and put a stronger stamp on it, because one thing and I wanted to ask you, you know, before we move on to the next show, you know, if you're going to make a Dracula musical you know, if you're going to make a musical piece specifically based on this material, one of the things that you need to probably convey, at least I feel, is Mm -hmm. you do need to humanize Dracula because vampires at face value were human at one point. That's the whole thing is they get turned, right? And what is the human side of Dracula? You know, why does he let Mina go at the end? Like, how do we feel for our anti-hero in the show? And I don't, get that from the Broadway production at all. I don't I don't walk away. That's what I wanted to find out from you. Do you feel like you have a better understanding of Dracula and Dracula's struggle?
2: To me, the thing that the musical focused on from the book point of view and even from a lot of the songs is that you don't see his human struggle. Right. You just see him play that stereotypical villain maybe right. 80% of the time. Where you're like, well, there's there's nothing redeeming or interesting about this character at this point. And I don't understand why Mina's so interested in him, aside from like hearing his voice. And right. like I said, you spend the entire first act with Lucy being drawn right. to him. Right. After that double marriage situation. And so side note, Kelly O'Hara plays Lucy in the Broadway production. Yes, and she her does. Her exorcism moment is hilarious. It's not supposed to be. But no, it's hilarious. No,
1: it is not supposed to be. Kelly O'Hara, oh my... And she also famously had a nude scene in this show, which was very controversial. Oh,
2: I missed that. She yeah. didn't look nude at any point.
1: Maybe it got cut by the time you saw whatever. Yeah, the but
2: bootleg.
1: Yeah, it, Kelly O'Hara, she... um, I, The whole cast for this show, I mean, we really haven't mentioned... We kind of mentioned Tom Hewitt was in this, uh, Kelly O'Hara... Um, Melissa Eriko. Uh, this was a Rob Evan, who is, right. you know, longtime Frank Wildhorn buddy. I mean, this these are heavy hitters. I don't know if the material really fit any of them well.
2: So you have Kelly and she sounds beautiful. It's all in her money notes, right? Mm-hmm. And you had Erica, who who's great as Mina. I, I don't know. I just, again, I couldn't walk out singing any of the songs. And they tried to do a lot of cool stuff with the staging and the fact that Dracula flies. And then there's a, speaking of the missing the comedy, but, like, the character of Renfield, the, Uh, like, Van Helsing's guy. You know, his death scene is actually really impressive in terms of stagecraft and stage combat, because right. he gets lifted in the air, one-handed by Dracula, and then the breaking of his neck is so well done. Right. And I, I that moment, I was like, whoa, that's cool. Um, and even the closing moment to Act 1, where all of a sudden he shows up as a bat and he's hanging upside down. Right. That was also really cool. But I don't know why it happened he just all of a sudden was a bat. You know, and if it just felt like they got a couple of these really cool tricks in and thought that that was just going to be enough that they were able to do it. Right. Instead of like giving them real purpose, they weren't utilized to move the story along.
1: Well, what was going on? This premiered on Broadway in 2004, which seems forever ago at this point. It kind of (laughs) was. For a long time, I would have been like, that was two years ago. It's not anymore. Uh, This was a crazy time. You were just only a couple years after 9-11.
2: Yeah, only a couple years after 9-11. And in the world of pop culture, Buffy the Vampire Slayer had just ended.
1: Really? I mean, Buffy was... I mean, Americans are obsessed with vampires, right? Yeah. And Buffy the Vampire Slayer on TV was like a milestone. Like, that and Dawson's Creek were teen television. Oh, like yes. For a moment. And... I watched Buffy early on, and I gave up when they started adding all the characters. But some people (laughs) were all about, like, all the characters. Oh, I watched all of it. You were there for Michelle Trachtenberg. You were there for Willow becoming a lesbian. You were there for everything.
2: All of it. I mean, Uh, I was a total Spike fan, you know, over Angel.
1: So speaking of Spike... You know, I don't know what year the musical episode of Buffy came in, but it was a it was towards the end, yeah, because it was when the cast was much larger than those initial years, and people knew there were demons and vampires and all those things, uh, and people were witches. And I still don't understand, but <laughs> uh, once more, with feeling, was a big pop culture phenomenon. Yes, and so it was. there actually was a lot of goodwill for something like Dracula. To work. Yeah. You know, I think on this podcast, we may come to the conclusion at some point, maybe not this week, maybe in the future, that vampire musicals don't work. But coming out of Buffy, I do think there was, I mean, they did it. Joss Whedon did it. And those aren't oh, even yeah. great songs. Like, Oh, no.
2: It's not great songs in that episode. No, But like you said, it gave reason
1: an impetus like this. to do
2: something like this and do something like Lestat because Lestat was only a couple of years later.
0: This is our commercial break. To advertise here, please email myfavoriteflop at gmail.com and visit our website for previous episodes. And to buy merch, please buy our merch. We have a one-year-old to feed. And now back to My Favorite Flop.
1: Okay, well, so we should move on to the next show, right? Because our next one is interesting because I don't know many other examples, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Christina. This is based on a series of novels, and these are best-selling novels. Yeah. Uh, Lestat being adapted into a musical would be akin to The Lord of the Rings, which has happened when we <laughs> cover that on the show, or the Harry Potter novels. You know what I mean? Like,
2: But let's let's talk about... The basics and then we'll then we'll okay. get into it. So Lestat opened in 2006 on Broadway. Two years uh, later. Two years later. The music is Elton John. Lyrics are Bernie Toppin. And book is Linda Wolverton. So the synopsis, here we go. The romantic and heartbreaking story of the extraordinary journey of one man who escapes the tyranny of his oppressive family only to have his life taken from him. Thrust into the seductive and sensual world of the vampire, Lestat sets out on a road of adventure and a quest for everlasting love and polyamorous companionship, but is forced to reconcile his innate sense of
1: good with the primal need to exist. Okay, so if Dracula is a... Sexy love story. Yeah. Lestat, I don't know if it's maybe the next step, but it's definitely one of the next steps to be like, we're going to make this even sexier. Because not only are these going to be sexier vampires, they're going to be bisexual, which is a thing. Like, Well, it's
2: also a thing in the lore of vampires.
1: Right. That's true, actually.
2: It's not just Anne Rice. Like, If you go back through the history of the vampire craze, I guess what we're going to call it. Um, That that idea, because they live for so long. Right. So, like, existence is different to them, right? So, therefore, the fluidity of sex and gender is just there. They don't think about it in such a binary way that we do in our and short human existence.
1: And that's kind of cool. And it's kind of cool mm-hmm. to see a female author like Anne Rice mm-hmm. explore that with male characters. Yeah. It, it's kind of groundbreaking because these novels were popular by people I don't even yes. think realize were reading novels about gay vampires um, <laughs> or bisexual vampires. Have you ever read an Anne Rice book? No,
2: I haven't actually read any Anne Rice.
1: I've read, I in high school, I read Interview with the Vampire Mm. Uh, because I was a fan of the movie and the novel is better like it always is (laughs) and I really enjoyed it and I don't know why I haven't read the other ones but um this musical isn't just based on that film it's based on all three of them or at least it started out being based on all three of them
2: yes when it was in San Francisco so it's out of town try it was in San Francisco in 2005 and fun fact it was more successful than the out of town tryouts of both wicked and cats
1: in san like, francisco can we stop for 2 <laughs> seconds both of these musicals had record breaking out of town tryouts yep and are some of the biggest flops post 911 yep. like that that i just we had to like state that cuz that's really huge
2: it is it's a yeah. really big deal and it's and i find that really fascinating i mean also notice that La Jolla and San Francisco are both West Coast. Well, and then when it transferred to the East Coast.
1: Different perceptions. Well, you know, it's interesting. I there have been for years to the point where it feels like a joke at this point. But there is a Broadway in Los Angeles and there have yep. been talk to- and there are gorgeous. Most of our movie palaces places like the Orpheum and things like that. There has been talk for 20 years now about renovating that area, putting in a streetcar, um, really making that an entertainment district again. And I have said for a long time myself, pl- someone give me the millions to make a Broadway West because I do think, you know, we talk about shows that try out in California. Another show, I'm not just saying we should do vampire musicals on Broadway in Los Angeles, but... um, <laughs> You know, I every time I bring it up, I'm like, you'd get your wicked and you get your phantom because you need those on the West Coast too, right? Sure. But legally blonde would have never closed in California. Oh, it would no. still be running today. Like, yeah. and I think there are musicals that fit the LA West Coast sensibility that would do better had they stayed there in a professional way that was supported like Broadway, you know, make them eligible for Tony Awards and things like that. I don't, do you have opinions on that, Christina? Because you live I in have, California still.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And speaking of Carrie, since you brought it up at the beginning of the episode,
3: oh, yeah, of I course. mean,
2: La Mirada, McCoy, Rigby, they did a massive production, a really significant production of Carrie here Clearly in acclaimed. LA critically acclaimed, and that's exactly what they did. They went to downtown and rented out one of those old theaters that don't get used anymore. And I think that if it had attracted enough outside money to help reinvigorate the actual surrounding neighborhood, it would have been a different story. And there's only so much that McCoy Rigby can do in that right. respect, right? Like other people have to come and join the cause.
1: There is a different sensibility for what attracts the critical and, you know, glitterati attention in Los Angeles than what does in New York City. Anyway, I, I think it's interesting that both of these had massive runs in California. They also
2: had massive changes.
1: So let's get to that. So Lestat plays in San Francisco and yeah. Go. <laughs>
2: It it plays in San Francisco and actually when it was here it um, encompassed all three books. Right. And really delved into material from all three books which I find really interesting because generally people are like no you have to trim you have to trim. Right. And apparently it was a better show when it had bits from all three. Right. In in the show itself instead of what they ended up with in, at, in Broadway which is watered down version of that they took out a lot of the other stuff right especially the queen of the damned stuff
1: which is so sad because you know queen of the damned famously was one of the last things that Aaliyah did before she died in 2001 which is only a couple years before this musical premiered so to cut all of that out of the show it just felt weird you know Yeah,
2: it's also so infamous within the Anne Rice fandom.
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, I can't imagine how you make a Harry Potter musical. You know, they had to make a Harry Potter play by continuing the story because there's no way that you could adapt all of that material. No. So that's definitely a difficult thing. How do you take the full story of the vampire Lestat And turn it into a Broadway musical. But that's what they attempted to do and then got cold feet, which is weird.
2: It is, it's very strange. Also, I found a bootleg of the San Francisco production and the visual on stage was astounding.
1: It's an epic show.
2: It's so beautiful and it's very different than what the Broadway production ended up looking like like they had these screens that lived at the back of the stage that were projected on. So in the San Francisco production, it starts out with Lestat writing his memoirs in modern day society on a laptop. And what he's writing is being projected onto the screen as if what Anne Rice published is his actual memoirs, right?
1: 100 percent.
2: So they were doing this fun projection thing to help help the audience follow along in his life and story. Um, right. And then they also utilize it in a lot of different ways. Like, when they go to Paris and they have the players and they, they're doing these plays and stuff like that, they were actually doing, like, shadow puppetry with the actors, which was so beautiful, it was oh, so visually yeah. exciting. And that was cut from the Broadway production. They also had really fun, because one of the big things within the Anne Rice novels, the lore that they talk about um, in How to Kill a Vampire is with fire. Right. And so that plays a huge part of the storytelling in the San Francisco production. And they kind of took out a lot of that visual. Like, they tried to do pyro stuff on Broadway, but the problem is, is like especially the bootleg I watched, was from someone who was sitting up in the balcony. Ooh. And you can literally see the flames come up and then three feet behind is the actor. Oh, like half acting to die and then trying to get down in the trap.
1: Oh, no. Door Elevator
2: thing. And, and you're and, just like,
1: Ugh. <laughs> well, and that's one of the most iconic scenes in the movie is Tom Cruise getting lit on fire by yeah. Brad Pitt. And, you know, by as Lou. Lew- I mean, you've seen the movie. Interview with the Vampire.
2: I haven't, actually.
1: No, Christina. Oh, I'm you would sorry. enjoy this one. I uh, probably would. It's it's really good. You know, Christian Slater plays the interviewer. Um, right. Tom Cruise plays Lestat. Uh, Brad Pitt plays Louis. He's wonderful. Mm. Kristen Dunst plays a very twisted Claudia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Um, I watched this as a child. This is the kind of parents I had growing up. See, I wasn't allowed to watch
2: it because of the parents I had.
1: (laughs) There's yeah, Uh, it is. It's so good. But I will. It's one of those movie moments you never forget is Tom Cruise on fire and his demon eyes like that is a thing. Like so for that moment to be and that's the toughest thing is interview with the vampire is a breathtaking film. There are Mm. breathtaking moments in that. And, you know, we've talked about that in some of these movie to stage transitions is how do you keep those iconic moments pure on stage, you know?
2: Yeah. And let them live their own life. Um, And I don't think, I think that the San Francisco production was a better choice because it kind of made it its own. Whereas the Broadway production really like went for the pyro and practical sense. Okay. And it doesn't play to everybody in the audience. If you're sitting in the first 10 rows, yeah, I'm sure it looked incri- right. incredible. But for anyone who's not sitting in those high-priced money seats, like you're, it's just not going to be the same experience and you're going to be pulled out of it, right? Something I also read was how people really felt there was a difference in the music from San Francisco
1: to Broadway. Well, so speaking of the music, I think that's a good transition. Mm. How did you feel about the music in this show? Because we talked a little bit about maybe where Dracula didn't hit the marks. Do you feel like it's effective in the storytelling?
2: I do. I also found like the two additional songs for Carolee Carmelo. Right. For the Broadway production that were added in previews for me feel awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah mostly because of the lyrics like musically it's fine um and Carolee carmelo has an astounding voice so like cool but i don't know the lyrics were so cringeworthy for me and okay. really like crossed that line of mother son relationship especially I'm, when i was listening to it cold right. i was like whoa didn't they just talk about didn't she just say that it was her son oh, but now she's talking about him like he's a lover. Wait, what happened? I'm so confused. And then when I watched the actual bootleg, I was like, this is worse. This is, I'm now more uncomfortable. (laughs) I mean, that's... And I don't think it helps that, especially in the Broadway production, Carolee Carmelo looks sexy. Like, she looks hot. No, but like, even before she becomes a vampire, because he turns her into a vampire, Right. right? And like, she looks really hot. And I'm like, that doesn't look like someone who could even be close to being his mom. Right. It's very strange to me. I just, maybe it was just weird casting. Maybe I'm just not understanding the source material well enough. But like, to me, it it took me out of it completely. And like other musical moments were great, but none of it like excited me.
1: So my feeling on the music is you know, I know Elton John is British. Like I yeah. get it. I get it. Like it's a thing, but he's always kind of had this Creole twang to him. I don't know. Mm. Like, yeah. I don't feel like he specifically sounds like a Brit when he sings. I don't think he, his music feels European. To me, it feels very Nolens. Like, and I, and I purposely said nolins. like it, and maybe it's cause he wrote crocodile rock. I don't know. But, um, Yeah, I don't know. It feels very Southern to me, which a lot of this musical takes place in New Orleans. You know what I mean? And so I feel like he brings an interesting for a pop composer. I don't know. There's some moments musically that I think work really, really well. And I think there's some music that works really dramatically well, like um, Sail Me Away, you know, talking about that Mm. fire moment in the movie version of Interview with the Vampire, we see Lestat because the movie is really more about Louis than it is Lestat, you know what I mean? We see him burn, and then we we see him later, you know what I mean? When it's like, oh crap, he's still alive. In the musical, and granted I know the books give you more of that backstory, to see him talking about being burned and bruised and scarred and to kind of humanize that, to me it was kind of cool because it's like in the movie, he Tom Cruise is almost such a character of a villain at that point. And to see, I don't know, to kind of see the moment afterwards, you know, Mm. it's kind of like the Maleficent of it all or the wicked of it all. You know what I mean? You get to see that moment that we weren't treated to in the big, Hollywood blockbuster. I think it's a beautiful song, but I might be biased because it's in my audition book. So
2: no. And look, I think that there are moments in this show musically that work. And yes, Elton John definitely has that twang you were talking about. And a big part of that is his genesis as a musician. Okay, He was so inspired by Elvis Presley and the blues and early R&B and jazz. And so like all of that comes out in what he writes. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I I definitely hear that. And like you said, the second act takes place in New Orleans. It definitely helps, especially the opening to act two actually feels like a completely different show to me where they're talking about the Creole. Oh, and uh, I love life. that song.
1: Welcome it's to a, the New World.
2: Yeah, it's a it's great such a good song. It is. It's a great song. And like we were missing in Dracula with lack of ensemble pieces. Right. I think that's actually a really great ensemble piece. But it does, to me, feel like all of a sudden we've moved to Aida.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: Like it feels out of place. Okay. So, yeah, I feel like there were a lot of good shining moments musically in this show, but it just doesn't feel consistent to me.
1: Okay. Well, so this show happens. It moves to Broadway, right? Yeah. And it is not as successful as it was in San Francisco. And there was a lot of buzz on this guy. I mean, people were very excited about Lestat. I remember I was in college when Lestat was playing in San Francisco. People went to San Francisco to go see it, people that I knew. And when it flopped, I was a little surprised because the reception in San Francisco was so positive, at least from fans. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Well, and one of the things I noticed... Between the bootlegs between San Francisco and Broadway, was how dark the Broadway production
1: got. It was very dark, definitely. And I mean that visually,
2: right? Like, same thing that happened with Dracula. Like, everything was all black and everything was just dreary. Right. Not as exciting and interesting as the set and the lighting was in San Francisco. Right. You know, they described Lestat as um, the character. They described the character as someone who's really charismatic and loves life, even though he's dead. And so, like, there are aspects of the San Francisco production that feel like that, that give that, that inspiration and that excitement. And then, when it moved to Broadway, it just felt like, all of a sudden, it became really melodramatic. Right. And really, like, lay Mizzy. Okay. I don't really have another descriptive word for it. Do you know what I mean? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, so speaking of the charisma of the person playing Lestat, how do you feel Hugh Pinero was in the role? And I bring that mm. up because Hugh Pinero famously also starred in Sideshow as okay. Buddy and also starred in Martin Gare, which none of these musicals were hits in the United States. You know what I mean? Um, and I and I and I hate to blame it on an actor because I think Hugh Pinero's got a beautiful voice and he's obviously an attractive dude, especially in the time frame of the Martin Gare us Lestat, you know what I mean? But that doesn't always equal the star power you need. I mean, Tom Cruise is a movie star. You know yeah. what I mean? He is charismatic to no end. Do you feel like you got the gravitas of a Tom Cruise from him portraying the role?
2: No, I didn't get the gravitas. Okay. I did get... Especially in the San Francisco... Again, the San Francisco version felt tonally very different from the Broadway version. And in San Francisco, he had all of that young, like, male, testosterone-y feel to him. And then when it got to Broadway, it was like he was trying to be James Barber.
3: Right. Oh.
2: Which is funny because Barber was in yes. the workshop. He played Lestat in the workshop. Right. And it felt like he was trying to be that, and that's not who he is.
1: No, not at all. I would never put them in the same... I would not call them back for the same people. Other than Carolee Carmelo and the girl who played Claudia, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with I Want More because I do think it's an awful song, but (laughs) Elton John singing the demo... Is one of the things that gives me life. And this did you get a chance to listen to that at all?
2: No, I didn't.
1: Oh my gosh, because it's Elton John just being Elton John. And I wish I did a better Elton John like impersonation. But like at the at the point when, when he's like, oh dear, I don't know. Like it's just my favorite thing in the world. And it's probably on YouTube. So if you're listening, just look up Lestat demo. Uh, you know, that's one of the controversies with Lestat is the show flops on Broadway, but they still record an entire cast album. It's an and Elton don't John. Don't release it. It's an Elton John show, so they pay to do it, but he refuses it to ever be released. It is Which locked is crazy. in a vault somewhere, <laughs> and I have searched like, and I'm not the only one. Like, people have probably tried to break into his like, I don't know, <laughs> to steal his this cloud recording. Absolutely, at this point, right? It's so weird. I, you know, there's a lot of listop material online, but um.
2: Well, and I should say now that you're talking about the fandom of it, Anne Rice's fandom love this musical that doesn't I mean, surprise me. love it to the point where there was an all female i'm gonna say high school production. I mean, not quite sure <laughs> but there was an all female production of this musical in Russia. like they translated I, I, it to Russian and did it, and it's on YouTube if you want to go it's find like a it
1: pro shot. it's like a Broadway pro, pro shot, but ...of a high school production.
2: Yeah, it was very strange. But it's fascinating. Like, I mean, they love it. And I I did a deep dive on, like, vampire fandom and found it all over the place. Okay, Like, on Wiki and, like, everywhere. They love this show and they blame the critics. They blame the critics for panning it just because it was a vampire musical. Interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I did find some reviews where they said, "Look, if you're a big fan of Anne Rice, I can see why you would love this musical. If you aren't, don't bother." Right? Oh, and
1: interesting.
2: Yeah, so it seemed to especially the San Francisco production really seemed to speak to Anne Rice fans. Okay. And Anne Rice even went to opening night on Broadway and said, I can't wait to come back and watch it. I think it's great.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm going to bring up Carrie again. Stephen King also loved Carrie the Musical on Broadway. But, you know, maybe they see the things that the general public don't don't.
2: Okay, so here's an interesting idea. I mean, how many times have we gone to see a movie of a book that you've fallen in love with because you've read it 50 times, right? And then you go see the movie and you get so disappointed. Right. Because you're missing all this stuff. But then on top of it, you notice all the things that the general public wouldn't notice because you, you're inside the character's head, right? Absolutely.
1: I mean, that's... You go on Reddit for any any of them <laughs> and they're there. <laughs> they're telling you all the things. Uh, Lestat... It's so interesting that this show hasn't had a further life because I think it's a stronger show than Dracula.
3: Yeah. And
1: I'll, I'll agree with that. And a stronger score. And I think the score would probably be more sung and more well known had that cast album been released and had there been the opportunity to. I would be fascinated to see a regional production of Lestat. You know, I would be fascinated. To even see a revival of it, because I mean, it's Elton John, like even Elton John on his worst day, writes really great music.
2: Oh, completely. And the fact that this was the musical that he did with his longtime writing partner, Bernie, which could be part of the problem,
1: too, because he
2: is not a musical.
1: He's not a musical guy. And Elton John has really become one himself. You know, he wrote that Lion King movie and, you know, got bitten by the bug. And has (laughs) flown with that.
2: Well, and we should also talk about current events. Like, why on earth would you think that we should turn Lestat at this time, point in time, into a musical, right? Right. And I think that a big thing, similar to what happened with Dracula, because Buffy had just finished in 2003, as this musical's being written and released, Twilight book one and two are out and are breaking all kinds of records.
1: And those are like the sexiest vampires ever. So, <laughs>
2: look, I said I love fantasy and I love, you know, that that world of books. I cannot
1: stand the Twilight books. I mean, if anything, we can thank Dracula and Lestat from for flopping for the fact that we did not get the inevitable
3: Twilight, Twilight musical?
1: musical. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you even I mean, at one point I was writing a Twilight musical, but it was not a sincere one. So there were songs like I run fast. That was. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. Twilight was a thing. So if I were a producer, I would be like, yeah, Elton John, the beauty. I mean, not only did Linda Wolverton write screenplay book to the musical of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the same director, like this is this is the team from Beauty and the Beast, which is huge. Like Beauty and the Beast was still running on Broadway. I, it did not close until two thousand seven. This was like this was a big Disney production that wasn't a Disney production. You know what I mean? They basically took everybody from Disney.
2: Yeah, I mean the choreographer was Jonathan Butterell. Okay, I mean he did the f- he choreographed the film of Finding Neverland. Oh he wow. He also had done in the piazza and then he did giant
1: Oh the wow. The accusa
2: giant, you know. Sure. So he's worked on some of these. He even did the Donmar company.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah. You also have him and and the choreography in, in this show. It's not there's not a lot of it, but those group numbers and stuff, I mean it's really beautiful. It's really interesting and certainly adds to the storytelling. Sure, so, 100%. Like you said, you've got this a- A-list team. It makes sense and it also makes sense because you're coming off the success of the Twilight books which you know wouldn't exist without Anne Rice's Lestat and Interview with Vampire
0: this commercial break is sponsored by please buy our merch please visit www.myfavoriteflop.com today
2: So let's compare and contrast these musicals.
1: Crazy little vampire musicals. So I think they both, like you said, have that pop rock feel to them. Uh, And they're obviously both about vampires. But I think the way, you know, the, the source material alone, one you have based on a classic piece of literature, which to me is a little bit easier of a sell because when you're trying to convert it to either being a movie or whatever, you kind of you have a basic storyline. You know what I mean? Mm. And you kind of like, you have the ability to tell that story however you want because it's already been told 50 different ways. And I feel that a lot with Frank Wildhorn's work, which excites me a little bit because it's almost like, how is he going to tell this story? You know? Um, Yeah. In whether it's Jekyll and Hyde, whether it's The Count of Monte Cristo, how is he going to tell this classic story? Whereas Lestat, like you said, has a living, breathing Fan base. So yes. there are different expectations out there from both of these shows when they premiere.
2: Yeah, and to talk about the fan base, you know, there throughout the years, um, especially since 1931 when the first film came out in the states, it is a sense of we go through periods of vampire craze, oh, and yeah. I'm I'm using that phrase because that's what I read on all the blogs, right. um, where you know especially coming into the early 2000s, we had Buffy interview with a vampire. Lestat, True Blood was coming out. Vampire Diaries was starting up. Blade series, the Underworld series. I mean, it's all there, right? And we have, as a public, and not just in the States, I would say worldwide, as human beings, we have this fascination with vampires. We have this fascination with the lore of vampires.
1: Well, and part of it is I think vampires, unlike other monsters, they live forever. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Is this, this eternalness, like even the most recent uh, season of American Horror Story has been centered on vampire-like creatures, you know? Right. This idea that you can stay young and you can not age and you can live forever. What are you willing to sell? It's kind of like this like devil's bargain almost because a lot of people at some point would would consider that in their head like well if i could freeze time and never die all of my stuff what would i actually do for that so it's kind of like a mortal like a i don't know it's it's
2: i also think that there's an element like with the sexiness of vampires and why we find them so sexy is this idea of savior complex right because they still have a human side to them. Right. And they're actually attracted to a human's life force. Right. Right? Like, there is something about that that is really sexy when you're looking at it from that point of view. And the idea of, like, getting to save someone's mortal soul. Right. You know, they talk about that, actually, a lot in Lestat, is saving the mortal soul. And, um... I think that that is something that, as humans, we have a real fascination with. I mean, even if you compare it to something like any major religion, Mm -hmm. you have to save your mortal soul. Right. So it makes sense to me that you would try and put vampire lore into a musical medium. I mean, it's been put into every other medium. Right. And they're ancient stories. I mean, they're verbal stories that have been passed down from generation to generation about these creatures.
1: Well, so interesting thing, you know, we keep referencing this 1931 Dracula movie, Mm -hmm. you know, and and you had brought up much earlier in the episode how it was horror movies that built Hollywood, but it wasn't just Dracula. It wasn't just Nosferatu. It, you know, it was Bigfoot. It was Swamp Thing. It was, you know, the werewolf. It was... The Blob. um, well, you, all of these things. I mean, these are the movies that built Hollywood. And then it was The yep. Wizard of Oz. But before The <laughs> Wizard of Oz, it was these things. But why don't we see... I mean, there have been a couple adaptations of Frankenstein, you know, which fascinates me. Because I think that is one that could work if done right. But why I don't agree. we see the other classic... I don't know. We've, I mean, we've had Jekyll and Hyde, too. But why, why not Werewolf the Musical? You know, does that...
2: I think a big part of that is when you get into some of these other monsters, the physical transformation is so drastic. Okay. That to do that successfully on stage is like a whole other level of technical issue.
1: That's one. I mean, how do you you physically transform someone into a werewolf in front of 2,000 people? If you can do it, let's do it.
2: (laughs) I mean, they kind of do that with Shrek. Fiona changes on stage. I mean, it's it's very brief, right. you know, and it's right before intermission, so then they can actually get her put into proper makeup and right. But I mean, I do wonder if there's a way to do it successfully. I'm, I mean, there are enough creative people out there and smarter makeup artists than me, obviously, who probably have a lot of fun ideas on how to make that work, right and bringing up the twilight books i think werewolves have become far more sexy since the twilight books and true blood Um, well
1: and i guess twilight werewolves see my issue getting behind a a traditional werewolf is one of the things that i think draws people to vampires in a musical is what you said there's still a piece of humanity with these monsters when Mm -hmm. a werewolf is a werewolf To me, unless it's Jacob, you know, um, (laughs) he's no longer human. You know what I mean? Right. And when you're dealing with non-human creatures in a serious musical, you know, part of what we do in a musical is we, the emotion, the human emotion is so big, you have to sing. So is it weird for the non-human To sing,
2: Yeah, I just got like a whole image of a wolf howling in tune and being melodic, but there being no words. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how how those kinds of monsters work. I know we touched on it. But what is the difference between America and the rest of the world when it comes to being an audience of these
1: films? Horror movies are big in America. They still are. They are. I wouldn't say they're the backbone of Hollywood, but it's the easiest way. To get your foot in the door, you know, I mean, look at Sam Raimi, like that. <laughs> Sam Raimi, big, huge Hollywood director starts with horror films, you know, and right. you could even say the same thing about Steven Spielberg, Close Encounters and oh, E.T. Those yeah. are definitely gray area. Uh, we love horror films, but when it comes to theater, I think it's just outside the realm for American audiences. But I think in other parts of the world, it makes sense because theater in America, theater is such a different art form than film or sports or you know what i mean yeah you go to europe and you go to asia where the government funds so much of the you can make big ridiculous artistic choices right like yeah directors can play with this material i remember you know a couple weeks back all those pictures came out i think it was in hamburg Was it? It was somewhere in Germany. That product, the new production of Wicked, that is not based on the Broadway production. Did you see those? No. Oh, there's this like epic, not professional, non copycat production somewhere in Europe. I think it's in Germany, and it's just it's so cool to see a big budget, different look at that show. You know what I mean? And you can do that in other countries.
2: Yeah, I. It's also interesting the idea that. In these other countries, there is less preciousness. Okay. For lack of a better word, there's less preciousness, isn't there, to theater and musical theater?
1: Well, it's not their art form. So I can't stress this enough, and people probably have opinions about me saying it. Musical theater is an American art form. I, I don't think we're the only ones who can do it well by any means, but it's something that is uniquely crafted by the American experience. You know, this move from opera to operetta to musical theater. It's something that happened here. It's influenced by race. It's influenced by class. It's influenced by the unique immigrant melting pot that we had during our history. So it is very precious to us. It's also very expensive to produce here. You know, the stakes are very high. But I think you're right. It's not as precious to other cultures. And you can have more fun with it.
2: I also think that there is something to be said for the commercial that is Broadway. Okay. Right? Broadway, we kind of mentioned this when we were talking about East Coast versus West Coast. Broadway is catering to tourism. Right. Always. That's how they make their money. That's how shows keep going. Because not enough people live on the East Coast or in New York City, for that matter, to keep some of these shows running for longer mm, than six right. months. Right whereas LA is about catering to a local audience because that's what it is. And I think the same could be said of Asian productions of these shows, right? They're catering to the local audience, especially now they've been doing so much translating of everything into their language, which is amazing. When I toured Asia, they only translated the book. Oh, yeah, 100%. We would would literally lip sync to spoken dialogue in those
1: local... (laughs) No, you didn't.
2: Oh, no, yes, we did.
1: No, oh, you did not. Oh, my God. Yes, we
2: did. But we would sing live in English. Okay. And then they would have big screens, and then the it would all be, like, closed captioning underneath in their language. Oh, In wow. the local language. So that was how we would do certain shows. And then there would be certain shows that were all English. Because okay. in a lot of these countries in, in Asia, English is a very strong second language that most people speak. So I think there's also something to be said... For catering to a local audience instead of worrying about having to bring in tourism,
1: yeah, I think I, I think so, and I think that um, Frank Wildhorn specifically has been very lucky to have his work move on to a big international stage. Yeah, I don't know. Well, so you kind of touched on it a little bit with Dracula, uh, maybe not your favorite thing in the world, but maybe doesn't matter because it's been huge across the world. Do you think Dracula could be revived on Broadway? No. What about Lestat? Yes. Okay. Why?
2: I think Lestat has more of a contemporary feel to it and has the ability
1: to speak to a
2: contemporary audience. Right. I don't know that Dracula does, especially in its current guise. Okay. It's so dated. It feels so dated. And it, even though it's not, it just feels that way. Um, whereas Lestat has this fun energy underneath it. Okay. Even though there were lots of changes made that were really, in my opinion, to the detriment of the storytelling and to the detriment of the production when it went to Broadway, it still has that underlying feel of excitement. Right. And energy and influence behind it, right? So I think that there is a world where Lestat, if we went back and revisited what really worked in San Francisco and put those elements back into the show, right? And maybe clean up some of the other stuff and, right. and make, in my opinion, the mom stuff a little less cringy. You know, it, it, maybe we do some of that. I don't know. I think that there is a world where Lestat really, really works.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see that cast album released. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be interesting to see them do it at Encores or like an Actors fun concert to just be like, so let's brush this off and see. Because uh, Elton John's score, I think, works a lot better than Frank Wildhorn's, 100%. And because l- the vampire books by Anne Rice and Elton John's musical all feel very contemporary you know what i mean they feel as part of the collective modern world of the theater i don't know i just there have been so many dracula movies made over the over the years so many retellings of that story to me it's like okay so frank wildhorn didn't get it right i'd be open to see someone else do it you know what i mean like because people have already told so many different draculas you know that it's almost like Okay. I I, I think I enjoy more parts of it than you do musically. I don't think it works as a musical. And I think that in order for Dracula to work in the theater, you need to, you've got hundreds of years, you've got centuries of history of this man, and you've Mm. obviously got the present storyline you're telling. That's your job in the theater is how do you humanize this monster? That's to me, that's Dracula, the musical, the play, whatever you're going to do. And I don't, yeah. I don't think they did that. So I think a new team could try that at some point. It'd be interesting. So in your opinion, Christina, these musicals don't necessarily suck, but you don't belong to their fan club.
2: It's just not my blood type. Sums up some vampire musicals,
1: doesn't it? That sums up a couple of them at least. Uh, Yeah, we're so glad that you joined us for our first spooky music. Well, I guess two musicals, right? Yeah. That's what we do. But it's our
2: first
1: spooky episode. Spooky episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, It's October. Um, It's my favorite season. I hope it's your favorite season too. Uh, And it's a perfect season because it gets dark earlier and the weather gets colder to Mm -hmm. turn on that radio and listen to some past episodes of My Favorite Flop, which you can find everywhere you listen to podcasts.
2: That's right. And it's also a good time to get our sweatshirt because it's chilly out. And you can find it on our website, www.myfavoriteflop.com.
1: And of course, you can see us chatting on all of the social media sites, which are Christina, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram,
2: and Facebook at my favorite flop. All right, Bobby, I think it's time for that first clue of our next episode.
1: I think so too. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the first clue for episode 19 is this. The big love duet in this musical was originally titled vampires in love. That's right, kids. More vampires, more fun. Oh, yeah. All right, Christina, do you have anything to send our listeners out with today? Well, I've got a question for you, Bobby. Okay, what's your question?
2: What do you call a blood-sucking guardian of the galaxy?
1: I don't know what you call a blood-sucking guardian of the galaxy.
2: Draxula.
1: But no- <laughs> Bye! Bye. Bye.